We've been seeing how Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day. And in this sermon, Jesus reveals what the reality of the gospel looks like lived out in daily life. And Jesus is now going to apply this new kingdom mindset, this new way of living, to two areas that we're going to look at over the next two weeks. Money and anxiety. Now, there's a reason why I didn't mention last week what we'd be studying this morning, because I figured our crowd would be a little smaller if I did. In his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, Randy Alcorn says that Jesus devotes twice as many verses to the issue of money and wealth than he does to prayer and faith combined. Some 2,300 verses in the scriptures. And he says that roughly 15% of Jesus' words in his earthly ministry were devoted to wealth. Jesus taught more about wealth than he did on other social issues. More than he taught on marriage, on work, on sex, or power, or politics. But why does Jesus spend so much time and energy teaching us about how we should view and handle our money? What does Jesus understand and know about material possessions and money that we don't? Well, that's hopefully what we're going to learn this morning. So would you go with me in prayer to the Lord as we come to His Word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we are dependent on Your Spirit right now to come. To come to illuminate Your Word so that we might hear it clearly. That we might see ourselves clearly in light of Your Word. See how far short we measure up to see the sin that lies within our hearts, but to see the Savior who has come and freed us from the power and condemnation of sin so that we might have our eyes turned upon you once again and live in the way that you have called and the power of the Spirit that you've given freely to us that indwells our hearts. And so, Lord, would you open our hearts this morning and do great surgery so that we might see our Savior and find him to be enough. We pray that you would do this for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's no secret that we live in one of the most wealthy countries in the world. And although our wealth, even within this room, varies, nonetheless, in comparison to so many other countries in the world, we live with an overwhelming abundance of wealth and possessions. And we live in a culture that is a culture of excess. We're in constant pursuit of more or better, whether it's more money or more square footage on our house or more success in our jobs or a better car or a better vacation destination or a better reputation. See, in our culture, money equals greater status. It equals greater success and greater privilege. And so... We pursue the almighty dollar and all of its benefits to the point that it exercises power and control over us. Now, when you possess a lot of money, which again we do in comparison to the other countries in the world, it's very difficult for us to surrender all, as we just sang, that Jesus calls us to when we come to faith in him. Jesus knows that this is difficult for us, and that's why he spends so much time addressing this issue. Because as we'll see, Jesus addresses this issue not simply to make us feel guilty and to punish us 
if we have money or if we have material possessions, but in order to free us so that we're not under money's power and its control. And so here in this passage, we're going to see that there's good news for those who have money and those who have possessions and who use them in the right way, in God-honoring way. So let me ask you as we begin, what are you living for this morning? What is your heart's desire set upon? Does the way that we live reflect our deepest desire and what that truly is? See, the truth that Jesus is revealing by way of these three metaphors, these three images here in Matthew chapter 6, is that his kingdom disciples are to have single-hearted devotion to himself and nothing else. And where this devotion is concerned here in the sermon, Jesus arises three questions that each one of us this morning must answer as we come to this text. First, where are we storing our treasures? And then next, we have to choose what kind of vision we'll have. And then lastly, whom we choose to serve. Verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And you'll notice that Jesus assumes that we have treasure. And he does so because he created us. He knows that our hearts were made to treasure something and someone. And in light of knowing that we have treasures, Jesus brings to light this reality that we can only store our treasures in one of two places. Either on this earth or in heaven. Those are only options. Now in the ancient Near East, uh, the main things that people collected were precious metals. They collected coins and silver and gold and things like that. And the other thing they collected was clothes, fine linens. And so they would do everything they could to preserve these valuables that they had in order they didn't get messed up. And now, 2,000 years later, not a whole lot's really changed because we're still consumed, concerned with clothes and money. Right? We have closets full of clothes. I'm sure, ladies, you've probably uttered at some point in your life, man, I wish I had a bigger closet. Or maybe men too. But we're consumed by these things. But Jesus goes on to explain that if we choose to store our treasures on this earth, our possessions and our wealth will never have security. They'll never be safe. There will be no security with our money and possessions because, as was the case in Jesus' day, he says that moths would eat holes in your fine linens. Or if that didn't happen, rust would corrode your precious metals over time. And then if you were fortunate enough to not have either one of those things happen, you had to worry about thieves. They didn't live in brick houses. They had these mud walls, and so thieves would break in. They would dig out and steal things from people's houses. The point that Jesus is making is that there's no security in earthly possessions and wealth. And this clearly applies to us still today. Whether it's money in the stock market, or housing values, or bank accounts, or social security, or anything else, risk and uncertainty are a reality. Now, we've created things like the FDIC in order to kind of make us feel good about our money being secure and where it's placed. And we have various types of insurance that help mitigate the risk. But nonetheless, even these risk reducers themselves are also created things. So nothing on earth is fail-proof. And Jesus makes it clear that storing up our treasures here on earth is a bad and wise and unwise investment. 
Earthly treasures do not last. Money and the things that they can buy corrode. They fade. And they break. Children, you know this. You buy a toy, your parents get you a toy, and a week later, a month later, it's broken. And you're broken hearted because it didn't last. And thieves break into our homes. Or we have people that vandalize our property. Now, we've come a long way in 2,000 years about how we can preserve certain things. Now, I can go to Lowe's and buy Rust-Oleum paint, and it'll help keep rust at bay. We have moth uh, balls that we can put in our closet to protect our clothes, but I don't know about you, but I don't know which is worse. The smell of your clothes smelling like mothballs or having a little hole in your favorite shirt. I still have memories of my grandparents' house and that smell. We also have burglar alarms we can put on our homes to keep burglars out. We've come a long way, but despite these advances, no earthly possession can stand the test of eternity. Now, I want to be clear that Jesus here is not forbidding that we have money or even that we have nice things. That's not what he's saying here. He's not advocating that we live a life of poverty and that in and of itself is virtuous. No, Jesus is digging deep into our hearts here and trying to expose where we're choosing to place our affections. He knows that too often we wet ourselves to the deepest love, to these fleeting earthly treasures that will not last. And he knows that all the money in the world and all the wealth and possessions cannot satisfy the longing that we have in our hearts. So he goes on, and Jesus, he always gives a put on when he calls us to put off something. And so he tells us in verse 20, he gives us an alternative choice to where we can store our treasures. Look at what he says. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, Jesus knows that we're in pursuit of the good life. And so he wants to point us and show us how to experience that to the fullest here. And storing up treasures in heaven, that's where we find ultimate security. Because moths and rust and thieves cannot lay claim to what is eternal. You may be wondering, okay, what are these heavenly treasures that Jesus is speaking of here in this passage? Well, Jesus is referring to anything that we can take into heaven, anything that is eternal, that has lasting impact. He's speaking of things that result from temporal choices that we make, temporal activities that we participate in, that have eternal consequences. So, for example, we invest in the study of God's Word, and we grow in holiness and understanding of Christ and who He is and what He's done. We're storing up heavenly treasures. We can store up heavenly treasures also in our relationships. As we pray and we plead for those that we love that do not know Christ, that they would be converted as they come in contact with the good news of Jesus. And then we spend our time, we spend our energy making sure that our children and that family members, classmates, co-workers, that they know the truth of the gospel as we present it to them and call them to make a decision for faith. And then as God grants us the privilege to see some of these people come to faith in Christ, these brothers and sisters in the faith, we will carry these relationships into heaven with us. Another way that we lay up treasures in heaven is when we use our money, our possessions, our time, our energy, and we use that to advance the kingdom of God. We invest in church planning. We give to missionaries to schools, to Christian organizations that are doing good for the sake of God's kingdom. 
This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 112. He said, It is well with the man who deals generously. See, the reason why Jesus calls us to store up our treasures in heaven is abundantly clear because he lays forth this very important principle here in verse 21. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when we come to Jesus through repentance and faith, He claims all of us and demands full allegiance. Everything that we are, everything that we own, He lays authority over. And Jesus is pressing us here where we spend our money because where we spend our money shows what we love the most. If you want to know what you love the most this morning, take a gander at your bank account and your credit card statement. These statements are love-revealed. So what would your statement look like? What would it show that you love most? Is it love of food? Eating out at nice restaurants multiple times in the week? Is it clothes? Is it a book collection? Is it cars? Is it homes? Is it newest tech gadgets? Or is it traveling or sports? What is it for you? See, most of us without hesitation would say, we love the gospel. We love Christ's church. But do we really? Does our giving and does our generosity back up what we say that we love the most? You ever finding yourself coming to the end of the year after having spent 12 months salary on just about everything that you've wanted throughout the year? Maybe you bought stuff for your kids, for your wife, for yourself. And you get to the end and you go, huh, I've got a little bit of money left over. I'm going to give that to the church. I'm going to give that to this Christian organization. And man, we feel good about ourselves. We feel generous. We'll even drop that nugget that we've done in conversation with other people. Show our generosity. But really all that we have done is we've pursued the earthly treasures that our hearts desire and we've given God the leftovers, the crumbs, you ever desire to have a greater passion and love for the work of God's kingdom? You wish you had a greater heart for the people in this community of Columbia. You wish you had a greater heart for missionaries that serve around the world. Do you wish to see Christ's church grow through the gospel going forth through church planning? But yet you always find yourself feeling stuck and never following through and getting over the hump and actually seeing these things through. Well, Jesus is teaching us here that the things that we buy, they don't have to be idolatrous pursuits. Because we can actually let our money lead us where we want our hearts to go. And so Jesus is suggesting that we should give where we want our hearts to follow. So if you want to grow in missions and having a heart for that, then begin to consistently give to people like Lauren Holly, who is going to Thailand, or Steve and Amy Robertson, who are in Chile, or a number of our other missionaries that we support in this church. And what happens is you begin to take a greater interest in places like Thailand, and Africa, and Spain, and Mexico, because you're invested there. You begin to pray for these missionaries, and for their interaction with these native people that they're engaging with, for the gospel to go forth, and lives to be transformed and changed. you wish that you had a greater heart for the church, for the poor around your neighborhood, 
or for the lost and here in our community. Start beginning to give your time and your energy toward these things and watch your heart follow after. See, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to invest our money and our time and energy, but he's wanting us to make wise investments, not in temporal things that fade away, but in eternal things that last. I was watching uh, last night an interview with Derek Carr, who just became the highest paid NFL quarterback for the Oakland Raiders ever in NFL history. Five years, $125 million. And a reporter asked him, said, you know, what are you going to buy first with this new contract that you have? And he jokingly said Chick-fil-A, because he likes Chick-fil-A. But then he goes on to say, you know, first, I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm going to tithe on the money that I receive. And then he went on to answer that question more seriously. And he said, you know what I'm really excited about when having this money? He said, all the lives that are going to be changed, not only here in America, but overseas and elsewhere. I don't know Derek Carr, but that sounds like a kingdom mentality to me. Not thinking about what he can amass, but how he can give it away. And further the advance of the gospel for one who gets what the gospel has done in his life. The Apostle Paul understood this as well. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, worthless, in order that I might know Christ and gain him. See, Paul was compelled by what Christ offered. So therefore, he didn't busy himself with earthly things, but he actually put himself out and suffered for the sake so that the gospel can go forth and his Savior could be glorified through his life. And like Paul... We can trade temporal possessions that we can never take with us for eternal possessions that we can never lose. Investing in human souls and relationships and the gospel going forth and Christ-like character of our own lives. What are you choosing to treasure this morning? Is it money? Is it that gun collection or boat or job or retirement account or that apple stock that you have or reputation again none of these things in and of themselves are wrong but if we're setting our heart and affections on these things there's no real permanence no real security in any of these things and so we must store up our treasures in heaven because what we treasure in this life leads our hearts and shapes our destiny for the life that is to come Next, we have to choose what kind of vision we'll have. Like what Jesus says in verse 22, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now we know that the body finds its way through, through sight, through light. And so we know that a person that can see, they walk in light. But yet a person who's blind cannot see, and therefore they walk in darkness. And Jesus' point is that we have to choose whether we're going to have a healthy and good eye or we're going to have a bad eye. Because how we think of money shapes how we view everything else in our lives. See, the problem with greed is it hides itself, and we don't even know it. Now, how many of you here this morning would describe yourselves to others as a greedy person? Now, I would assume none of us would. 
In my few years of ministry, I've never had someone come into my office for counsel and say, you know what, I just need to confess, I'm a greedy person. I want to come talk to you about my idol of materialism today. It's never happened. Because greed is very sneaky in this way, because we can always find someone else who has more money than we do. And so we don't think it applies to us. It's very easy to feel like greed, we don't fit in this category. And of course, it doesn't help matters that when we maybe have a moment of clarity and we say, you know what, should I spend this money on these new clothes? Or this new furniture for the house? Or on this new renovation project? Or on this new car? Even if we ask that question immediately, we think of someone else who's spending a lot more money than we are on much nicer things. And so instead of asking that hard question, not do I have the money to buy this, but is this honoring and glorifying to God and spending this money on this thing? Instead of asking that, we just justify and continue amassing more earthly treasures around us. See, when you're committing sins like adultery and murder and theft, you know you are. But greed, not so much, because it's that sneaky and often hidden. But what Jesus shows us here is that our eyes are focused on having more and more stuff and wealth, then we're going to be living in darkness. Where we set our spiritual eyes and what we gaze upon, that shapes us profoundly. Because what we set our eyes on will either direct us down a good and wholesome path that's well lit, or we will be stumbling in the shadows of darkness. Now, if we were to analyze our thoughts, I think that we would all be pretty surprised at how often our thoughts go to worrying about our bottom line, worrying about our financial situations, or thinking about what we could buy with the money that we have. And Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Paul doesn't say money is the root, nor does he say money is the root. He said money is a root of all kinds of evils. And what Paul's saying is when you set your love and devotion upon money and you allowed it to root deep into your hearts, what is going to result is destructive, sinful fruit that comes from that as a byproduct. And the principle is simple. The root determines the fruit. What I mean by that is we can control what we let root in our hearts, but once it takes root, we cannot control the fruit that comes from it. So for example, if you are interested in gardening, you can buy all kinds of seeds. But when you plant those seeds, you can't change the fruit that comes. So if you plant apple seeds and tomato seeds, you're going to be picking apples and tomatoes when those things grow and bear fruit. When the love of money is rooted in our hearts, it's going to inevitably produce bad fruit. You ever been sitting in someone's house and you're looking around and you go, man, that's a nice TV. wish I had one like that. Ah, That's a nice man cave. I wish I had a place to retreat and go. Look at that island in the kitchen, that granite countertops. Man, those are nice. Ooh, a green egg? That'd be fun to cook on. And you just find yourself envying and coveting everything in the home. You ever been there? Okay, maybe just me. Um, Do you ever find yourself getting frustrated when you hear about someone's salary and how much they make and then your mind starts daydreaming of, man, all the things that I could buy if I made what they made? Or have you ever tried to cut corners and do something unethical at work to try to get ahead? Maybe throw a coworker under the bus so that it makes you look better. Improves your chances. 
Many marriages and relationships between parents and children have been strained and even broken from abandonment, from indifference, because either mom or dad is so fixated on success in their job that when they're home, they may be physically there, but they're not emotionally there. They're consumed with the next dollar that they can make. All these things are fruit that results as our hearts over time allow allow money to root itself and take the throne of our lives so that we're blinded and we're walking in darkness. And it all happens so subtly, not at once, but in very small ways over time. See, money promises so much pleasure and enjoyment, and I'm not going to lie to you, for a short time, it can deliver on that promise. It's nice to have nice things. It's enjoyable to be able to travel and go places. But it is not sustaining. Because what happens in the process and what we often overlook is that money begins to enslave us and demand more from us. The only way that we can ensure that we have a healthy and good eye and good vision is if we look to Jesus Christ, who says He is the light of the world. He says in John 8, He said, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, we can't do what is right until we begin to see what is right, until our eyes are open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we can begin to walk in the light that he calls us to walk in. See, we often spend too much time looking at the wrong things. Our wants and our desires, they are at the core of our identity. They're the fountain from which our actions, our behaviors flow. Because what we behold, what we lay our eyes on, that is what we become. So what do you spend most of your time looking at? Is it scrolling through Amazon and eBay, looking at all the things you wish you could buy and purchase? Or students, is it looking at your posts and constantly weighing on every click and like and comment? Guys, is it football season, which is right around the corner? Is it college football and the Titans? Or is it watching HGTV and looking at all the things that you feel need to be done to your house and coveting all those nice things that they show? See, we're either going to choose light or darkness, Christ or this world. Where are you setting your vision this morning? This is a daily choice that we have to make. Where are we going to fix our eyes and what are we going to lay our security in? Now, if you're not a believer here this morning, I urge you to repent of pursuing the darkness and turn to the Lord Jesus. Turn from the things that you're seeking, the created earthly things, trying to find satisfaction and hope in all of them, but coming up empty. And come to the one who will deliver on his promises to satisfy you with himself and with the abundance of his blessings that he affords you. Lastly, we see that we can have two of a lot of things in this world, but we cannot have two masters. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is making the point very clear here that we will be mastered either by our money, or the things of this world, or by God himself. But when you hear that word, master, doesn't it kind of make the hair on your neck stand up? 
We don't like to hear that word. I don't want to be mastered by anybody. I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s, and there's a cartoon I used to watch. He-Man, master of the universe. And He-Man would hold up his sword and he would say, I have the power. And like He-Man, we all want to be autonomous. We want to rule and have power. But Jesus is recognizing we're going to be mastered either by this world or by himself. See, we were created to worship. It's not a matter of whether we will worship. It's a matter of what we're going to set our worship upon and what's going to be the object of our worship. And when money and material possessions trap and enslave our hearts, that's what becomes the object of our worship. And we bow down to it. See, money promises that this thing or that thing will bring security, it will bring success, it will bring popularity and esteem for my peers. But money cannot deliver fully on this promise. Because money will take everything from us and leave us empty. Oh yeah, we'll have a lot of stuff around us, but we'll be hollowed out inside, feeling helpless and hopeless. See, Jesus offers us another choice. He invites us to be mastered by himself. We have to choose one or the other because they're incompatible. God wants us exclusively to himself. In Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, when we try to please both God and money, we end up resenting God because of what he demands and the way that he gets in the way of what we're really desiring, what we're really wanting. See, money can only destroy us if we give it power to do so. But on the other hand, God, who is all-powerful, is the only one who can master us in such a way that we can become transformed and find true freedom and lasting life and blessing in Him. Now, some of us try to do the impossible. We try to manage God and money. We come to church on Sunday, and then we set our affections and our heart on the world the other six days of the week. But Christ says, I've got something so much better. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul's revealing that Christ has purchased us, redeemed us at the cross through his impoverishment, through his death and laying it down for our sake. By his work, He's brought us security and lasting treasure that only He can provide. Because Christ looked down on our plight and He saw we couldn't do what was necessary to be done. And so He came and served us and did it for us. Who wouldn't want a master like this? Who wouldn't want a master who's full of compassion, love, patience, long-suffering, the one that provides the fullness of all that our hearts desire? Who else is worthy of mastering you? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. I said earlier that we live in a culture where more is better. And I believe that's true. More is better. As long as we are longing for more of Christ, we find that those longings are met with greater satisfaction in Himself and in what He supplies for us. See, Christ's call is to put off the things of this world and to follow Him alone. 
But see, Christ, in calling us to do this, He knows we're not going to do this perfectly. He knows we're going to, to fail. And so He offers us grace. See, He knows that momentarily we're going to take our eyes off of Him and we're going to see the nice and shiny new things of this world and we're going to want those. We're going to pursue those for a time. But then He says, I'll welcome you back. I'll restore you when we come back to Him in humble repentance and we set our gaze once again upon Him. Matthew 13, Jesus tells this story of a man who finds a treasure in a field. And so in his excitement, he buries that treasure and he goes and he sells everything he has in order to buy that field so that treasure is his. When you actually get Jesus, the ultimate treasure, and you strive to put away everything else, the earthly pleasures, the earthly desires of this world, then you find that he's the only treasure that you need. And he's the only one that ultimately satisfies your soul. And only then does your heart find what it was created to worship and enjoy. Not only now, but for all eternity. See, as sojourners, God works this process of transformation throughout the rest of our lives until we meet him in glory. Because this is not our home. We're pilgrims on a journey. So who owns your heart this morning? What is mastering you? Are you spending and spending and searching and searching to try to find something to satisfy your starving heart? Does that describe you this morning? If it does, come to Jesus. Come and receive what you cannot afford. But what He freely gives to you at cost to Himself through His person and work on the cross. Submit your life to the one who is only worthy of your devotion, your love, your obedience. And as we're about to sing in just a moment, as those truths and that reality begins to seep deeper and deeper into your heart, you'll be able to say with great confidence, riches, I don't need them, nor man's empty praise. Thou, Jesus, is my inheritance, both now and for always. May we treasure the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have to confess that the allurement of this world and the things that it provides so easily and often entangles our hearts. For we compare ourselves and often we accuse you of being stingy in what you have given to us and wanting more and wishing we had more wealth, more toys, more things. But Lord, thank you that you have given us what will truly satisfy us. And you have laid down your life in doing so, so that we might come to know where our riches and our wealth truly lies, in the person of Jesus Christ. Would you free us more and more from the clutch of our hand upon our possessions and our money, so that we might freely give to see your kingdom continue to expand and go forth, so that we will be able to, in reality, see and know that we participate in the joy of every tribe, tongue, and nation, sitting and bowing before the throne in the new heavens and the new earth when you return. Lord, may we expend ourselves and do so joyfully because you've expended yourself for us and given freely to us. Holy Spirit, work this in our lives. Pray this so that it would impact not only our church here, 
but the community that we live in, the relationships that we have. So do this for your glory's sake. Amen.